Chapter 10 of The Fairy Spinning Wheel and the Tales It Spun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fairy Spinning Wheel and the Tales It Spun by Cachul Mendes. Translated by Thomas Shanri Vivian. 1855-1925 A Wonderful Attraction When the Princess Athilde was born, people were struck with admiration and astonishment, with admiration because she was the sweetest little darling that you could ever dream of, with astonishment because she was scarcely any larger than a full-blown rose, or longer than your finger. Lying in a cradle no bigger than your hand, you would have said she was a little featherless bird in its nest. The king and queen were never tired of admiring the baby's tiny limbs, her pink feet, which you might have put into a doll's stocking, her little body like a white mouse, or her face which you might have covered with a daisy. To be sure, they were somewhat troubled to see her so very, very, very small, and wouldn't believe that their little daughter was a dwarf. What they hoped was that she would grow, and grow without losing her cunningness. They were very much deceived in their expectations, however. She remained cunning and sweet as ever, but she grew so very little that when she was five years old she was scarcely higher than a good-sized blade of grass, and in playing in the garden paths she was obliged to stand on tiptoe to pluck the violets. Famous doctors were brought to the palace, and were promised the richest rewards if they succeeded in even adding a few inches to the height of the princess. They consulted together with gravity, crossing their hands over their stomachs and shutting their eyes behind their spectacles. They invented medicines which Othield was obliged to drink, and unfailing ointments with which she was to be rubbed every morning and evening. All was labour lost. The princess remained a charming dwarf, so small that when she was playing with a favourite lapdog, she could pass between its paws without having to bend her head. The king and queen then sought the fairies, with whom they had always been in excellent terms. They came at once, summoned litters of golden cloth with fringes of precious stones, carried by naked Africans, others in crystal cars drawn by four unicorns, some who found it more convenient to come in by the window or the chimney, appeared as birds of paradise or blue-winged jays, but who, directly they lighted on the floor of the drawing-room, turned into lovely ladies all clothed in satin. One after the other, they touched a thrill with their wands, took her in their hands, she was no heavier than a lark, kissed her, breathed on her hair, and made signs on her forehead, while they murmured strange words. But the charms of the fairies had no more effect than the medicines of the doctors, and at sixteen the princess was so small that one morning she was caught in a trap that had been set in the park for nightingales. The courtiers did their best to console the royal parents. They declared that nothing was more ridiculous than a large figure, that to be tall was simply to be deformed, and that, as for them, they wished they were only six inches high. The ladies of honour gave up their high heels, and the chamberlains never came near the throne except on their knees. But the ingenious flatterers didn't always succeed in consoling the king and queen, and many times the parents could scarcely keep from crying 
as they kissed their little daughter with the tips of their lips for fear of swallowing her. But they kept back their tears, so that she mightn't be drowned in them. As for Othild, she didn't appear at all put out by her misfortune, and indeed seemed to take great pleasure in admiring her pretty little person in a hand mirror cut from a single diamond. As time went on, however, the king and queen grew less sad, and there was not much doubt that the time would have arrived when they would not have grieved at all over their daughter's misfortune if something hadn't occurred to renew their sorrow. The report of the Princess Othil's beauty reached the young emperor of Siranagan, and he thereupon sent ambassadors asking her in marriage. You may easily understand the trouble which was caused by this proposal. What? Marry this little doll no bigger than a paraquet? Why, it was not to be thought of. Then, too, the demand of the Emperor of Saranagan was all the more dreadful, because he was of enormous figure. He was not only the handsomest of princes, he was also the biggest giant of the whole countryside. On the day of his birth, it had been impossible to find a cradle big enough for the enormous baby prince, and he was put to bed on the thick carpets of the throne room. At three years of age, he had to stoop to steal the birds' nests from the top branches of the oak trees. His parents, like those of Athild, had vainly consulted the doctors and fairies. He had grown and grown after a fashion that was out of all reason, and when his subjects, in celebrating his first victory, had put up arches of triumph over the streets, the prince was obliged to get off his horse to pass under them, and even then he struck the silver dragon on his helmet and nearly knocked it off. Naturally, the king and queen informed the ambassadors that such a marriage was impossible. But when the young emperor heard this reply, he was furious. The story of Othil's littleness he declared to be an absurd story, and he clapped on his helmet with its shining silver wings, crying out that he would sweep the kingdom with fire and blood to avenge such a trick. The young emperor kept his word. There were terrible battles, towns were destroyed, and their entire population put to the edge of the sword so that at last the king and queen came to the conclusion that nothing would be left of their kingdom unless they came to terms with the gigantic conqueror, who was marching towards the capital, leaving behind him a train of cities wrecked and forests in flame. They therefore sent to him, asking for peace and promising the hand of their daughter in marriage. They did this the more readily because they were confident that the emperor would give up his idea as soon as he saw Othild, and march back to his own country with his victorious army. The day was then set for the first interview, which was held in the park, the emperor not being able to stand up in any of the halls of the palace. Well, said the emperor, I don't see the princess. Will she soon come? Look down at your feet, said the king. There she was indeed, scarcely higher than the borders of the garden walk, so slender and so pretty in her little golden robe, with glistening stones about her forehead, and looking so much the smaller beside the young and magnificent emperor. Alas, said he, for he was grieved indeed to see her down there, so charming, but so small. Alas, said she in her turn, for she was grieved indeed to see him up there, so beautiful, but so big. Tears came into the eyes of both, into hers as she looked up, and into his as he looked down. Sire, then said the king, you see that you cannot possibly marry my daughter, 
I am grieved, I am sure, to have to give up the honour. He didn't finish his sentence, and mute with astonishment, he stood staring at the princess and the emperor. As he looked, she began to grow, and the young emperor to shrink, for love, more powerful than the fairies, drew them one to the other. Soon they were nearly of the same height, and then their lips touched like two roses on the same stem. End of chapter 10